dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? And welcome to the Neo-Jurassic Podcast, a speculative exploration into the wild possibilities of the Neo-Jurassic world. I'm your very humble host, Bry, and I am so glad you've decided to join us. Truly, thank you so much for tuning into this, our second of episodes. This episode is a particularly big one. So big that ultimately I decided to show y'all some mercy and split it up across two somewhat more manageable weekly installments. The story of Jurassic Park essentially began as a cautionary sci-fi tale about the dangers of unregulated genetic engineering and man's dangerous delusions of control. As the series has progressed, however, the focus has largely shifted towards what could be argued are more tangible and pressing concerns. In our last episode, for instance, we took a look at how corporate greed could lead to today's tech gods resurrecting the largest flying animal that has ever lived. Today, we'll be exploring how feral de-extincted megafauna could impact the world's ecosystems and raise some serious existential questions about what can even be considered natural in this rapidly changing world of ours. As I'm sure you may know, the most recent feature-length Jurassic film, Fallen Kingdom, ended with animals from Isla Nublar being released into the wilds of Northern California. The internet was immediately ablaze about the implications of dinosaurs running wild across North America. How long would it be before they were all wrangled up? Would they all be euthanized? If not, where are they going to go? A year later, the short film Battle at Big Rock offered us a glimpse at what this new Neo-Jurassic world could look like. A family camping in the forest of California narrowly survive a confrontation between an adult Allosaurus, and a very big one at that, and a small family of Nasutoceratops. A young girl is somewhat hilariously pursued by a pack of hungry Comsognathus. And a thirsty Parasaurolophus drops in on what appeared to be the set of Grumpier Old Men 3. Those are just a handful of the possibilities suggested. As the franchise moves forward, it is clear these creatures will no longer be relegated to a pair of islands off the coast of Costa Rica. No, I, I think we'll be looking at a world in which these animals could conceivably show up just about anywhere and in any context you would expect an animal to be. You know, a group of compies rooting for chicken bones and pizza crusts in a suburban trash can a lone baryonyx stalking for prey alongside the Pacific Coast Highway. Or, as we're about to hear in this episode's fictional newscast from a fictional Neo-Jurassic world, a fiercely territorial group of Dinochiris establishing themselves a breeding colony way out there in the Everglades. Florida's Everglades. The area has long been known for its struggle with destructive invasive reptiles. Burmese pythons, Argentine tegus, and Nile monitors have been but a few of the troublesome invasive species to take up residence there. Over the last two decades, these voracious and prolific animals have taken a tremendous toll on native wildlife. Now, the Florida government is grappling with the arrival of yet another introduced species a particularly foreign species that is not only from another continent, but from 70 million years in the past. The spectacularly bizarre seven-ton de-extincted dinosaur, Dinochirus morificus. The Cretaceous animal is certainly among the stranger dinosaurs to have been resurrected. Looking at it, you could be forgiven for thinking it was the product of some gravely misguided hybridization effort. At 40 feet in length, with 8-foot-long forearms, a tall dorsal hump, shaggy patches of fur-like feathers, and a thick duck-like bill, the animal is as intimidating as it is bizarre. Although the species is predominantly herbivorous, it would be wise to stay your distance. As local 54-year-old python trapper Tammy Fox discovered, these animals are already fiercely territorial of their new home. As part of the state's ongoing python pickup program, 
Tammy is one of several hundred individuals regularly patrolling the Everglades for invasive pythons. Last June, Tammy and her beloved 2001 Chevy Silverado ventured far out to an area of the park rarely visited by other python hunters. The hope was to score a sizable bounty or two far off the beaten path. The Everglades, however, had other plans, and Tammy stumbled upon an invasive critter far more formidable than a 15-foot python. Well, I went out after my shift at the Waffle House, as I usually do. The pythons are usually easier to find at night, so I took my truck out, and kind of way out this time. I had, I had pretty lousy luck lately, you know, so I had figured I'd try that part of the park that butts up against that um, busted drug lord's compound. I figured ain't nobody goes there, and, you know, I, maybe I'll have some better luck this time. And so I was driving out there maybe like an hour and a half, hour, hour and a half, and I seen something big moving out of the corner of my eye, right up, like right of the corner of my eye. And, and then I heard this, this sound like I ain't never heard before. So I stopped the car, I got my gun, my snake bag, and I stepped out of the car for a closer look. You know, I was, I was real scared because this area was known for some sketchy activity, you know, with the drugs and the illegals and whatnot. So I, I was scared and I got like no cell service out there at all. Over the last three decades, the area of the park Tammy found herself in had become well known as a major through line for South Florida's drug trafficking network. Little over a year ago, most of these operations were shut down in a sweeping series of raids. Still, park guests rarely ever dare to venture quite so far into this troubled area of the park. I, I, I didn't really know what I had seen or what I was even looking at out there. I, I was out there using my little phone as a flashlight, looking out where I seen this little cypress grove, you know, about, about 40 feet from where we are right now, right over there. And I took a few steps out into the water. And next thing I knew, from up from behind me, I heard this loud booming honk. And, and then I just seen my truck get shoved right off the road, like right there into the water, just right off. And I was, I was terrified at that point. With no cell service and her truck completely totaled, Tammy was effectively marooned. Trapped in an infrequently patrolled area of the park and surrounded by a group of seven-ton angry brooding dinosaurs, Tammy wasn't sure she would see another day. You know, I was, I was real scared because this area was known for some sketchy activity, you know, with the drugs and the illegals and whatnot. So I, I was scared and I got like no cell service out there at all. I, I, I didn't really know what I had seen or what I was even looking at out there. I, I was out there using my little phone as a flashlight, looking out where I seen this little cypress grove, you know, about, about 40 feet from where we are right now, right over there. And I took a few steps out into the water. And next thing I knew, from up from behind me, I heard this loud booming honk. And, and then I just seen my truck get shoved right off the road, like right there into the water, just right off. And I was, I was terrified at that point. I, I was lost out there for, you know, a good 10 hours or so. I, I was hiding in some shrubs, just telling myself, keep it together, Tamala, keep it together, girl. You know, I couldn't see nothing, but I could hear something big, and I smelled something big. And once the sun went up, I seen what I was dealing with. I couldn't believe my eyes. These huge humpback moose goose monsters walking around, making all this ruckus. I, I, I went out hoping a bag a big python. No way in hell did I expect to find a fucking dinosaur. Several hours later and five miles from her now crushed truck, Miss Hawks was eventually picked up by a patrolling Florida fish and wildlife team. Skeptical of Tammy's account of the incident, it would be three days before park rangers investigated the area and discovered the animals for themselves. And it wasn't long after this discovery that a nationwide media circus ensued. It has now been eight months since Miss Fox stumbled upon these colossal swamp things. Since then, we've learned the animals have established a small breeding colony. What began as an estimated group of four to five adult animals has now exploded in numbers. Wildlife experts like Brad Lindstrom believe there may now be as many as 30 of the animals established throughout the park. 
Uh, last summer, we'd estimated the animals had laid as many as 32 eggs between the five adults. In the absence of any serious predators, these animals are going to expand their range very quickly. The population's already exploded. The babies sure are cute, but I'm concerned it's only a matter of time before someone gets seriously injured. Today, authorities are at a loss as to the best course of action. While euthanization seems to be the popular choice amongst conservationists, a growing number of locals have voiced staunch disapproval. A nationwide movement known as Dinochirus terrificus has already begun campaigning to protect these strange, shaggy behemoths. Recently, some ecologists have even gone so far as to suggest these animals may actually be beneficial to the park's fragile ecosystem. They argue that these animals may actually be filling an ecological niche that has gone unoccupied for over 13,000 years. It's entirely possible, but until we thoroughly study these animals and the impact they're making on the environment, we really just don't know. The risk here is that by the time we find out, it might be too late. Meanwhile, while the authorities scramble to decide their fate, the animals have gained at least one rather surprising ally, Tammy Fox. Yeah, 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 I've, I've been giving tours of the park and the dinosaurs in my pickup truck since the news hit. You know, since it hit, I've, you know, I became something of a big deal. I, I had to quit my job at the Waffle House to handle the demand. It's crazy. I, I, I've got like a three-month waiting list right now. You wouldn't believe it, you know? I, I'd like to think that these things have found a home here. I don't think they're hurting nobody. And, you know, the other day, I even seen one slurp up a 10-foot python like it was a noodle. You know, they're slurping the snakes up. You keep far enough away, you let them do their thing, you won't have no problems with them. I say, let's wait and see how this all shakes out, because, you know, people just love these things. Typically, when you hear about an invasive or introduced species, it's a fairly small one. A cane toad, a zebra mussel, a rabbit, a mongoose, an Asian longhorn beetle, a starling, a carp, etc. Aside from livestock, it's exceedingly rare that we hear about any species of megafauna becoming an introduced species. By the way, megafauna by definition is an animal larger than 90 pounds. Just an FYI. So even in the world of Jurassic, the idea of a 9-ton, 40-foot-long goosasaur like Dinochirus becoming an introduced species in a place like the Florida Everglades might seem far-fetched. However, the possibility might not be quite as implausible as you might expect. In fact, the Colombian government is currently struggling with a flourishing population of introduced multi-ton semi-aquatic megafauna all their own. Or rather, not their own. Megafauna from elsewhere. Not their own. Well, I guess it's their megafauna now. It's their megafauna problem now. To learn more about this truly fascinating invasive situation, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Jonathan Shuren. Dr. Shuren is an ecologist at UC San Diego. His work focuses on the ecological health and balance of aquatic environments and ecosystems. He's been studying the effects these enormous creatures have had on the River Magdalena and its surrounding bodies of water throughout Colombia. The entire story and surrounding controversy is wildly fascinating to me, and I really cannot wait to share it with you all. So let's dive in. If you could uh, explain to the listeners exactly how uh, Colombia wound up with a thriving population of large African mammals. Sure, yeah. So uh, Colombia had a civil war that went on for 50 years uh, and ended uh, formally in 2016. And during that time, it, uh, it was a uh, sort of attractive hotbed for illegal activity. Uh, so most notably, uh, cocaine uh, and, um, and Pablo Escobar and the Cali cartel, cartel uh, were uh, used sort of under you know using it for sort of criminal cartels of drug trans drug exporting, um, and Pablo Escobar was the leader of the Medellin cartel, and he uh, was at one time one of the richest people in the world and a big figure in Colombia. He didn't really fly below the radar. He was uh, sort of uh, fairly prominent and public there, 
uh, and he had a ranch outside of Medellin uh, in uh, in the countryside near a, a town called Puerto Triunfo, and he uh, had a fascination with large animals, and he's made a sort of private zoo for himself of collecting exotic animals. And, and I've, I've read that he at one time had over a thousand different uh, sort of, you know, large animals, giraffes, Damn. And, uh, rhinos and, and whatever else. Uh, and so, and it was, he opened it to the public. So um, people from the neighboring towns could go and visit his zoo. And that was sort of part of why he was a bit of a folk hero is that he, uh, uh, he, he sort of uh, did things like that for the local community. Um, and so uh, he uh, died in 1993 uh, although in Colombia, there's still a lot of talk that he is actually alive and well somewhere, uh, perhaps in Brazil is what I've heard. Um, but in any case, his empire sort of fell apart. Uh, and so somebody had to decide what to do about his zoo. Uh, and so most of the animals were shipped off to various other zoos around South America. Um, but he had a group, an original group of four hippos, three females and one male, uh, living in a lake there, and obviously catching hippos in a lake is not uh, an easy thing to do. Not anyone could have <laughs> a good time, uh, and so nobody was very excited about going getting the hippos out of the lake. And so yeah. uh, they did what any sensible people would do, and just sort of left them to their own devices. Uh, and so they have been doing uh, what hippos do best, which is make more hippos. Uh, and so the numbers have been slowly uh, creeping up over that, the, you know, the last 27 years or how, however long it's been since he died. Um, and uh, and they've been sort of spreading out from the central population. So there's one main lake that has a group of maybe 20 to 30 of them, uh, which is the one that's sort of easy to see. It's uh uh, so they've turned his ranch into an amusement park. It's called Hacienda Napoles. Uh, it has a sort of safari theme, so you can go and uh, ride around. And they have, you know, attractions and rides and uh, and animals and things you can see. Uh, and there is a sort of wild population of hippos there. They keep them uh, from moving around too much. They they kind of go dump a bunch of food for them on the ground. So a lot of carrots and cabbage and things uh, every day. It's not really much food. Uh, you know, it's not really much of what they're eating, but it's sort of little treats for them that keeps them right. kind of in that in that main area. And so there's uh, there's one main lake that has that main population, but they're not enclosed or confined in any ways. And so they have uh, spread out, and there are, there's a number of other. All the lakes are artificial; they're made uh, by damming little streams for storing water for cattle ranching. Uh, and so there's a couple other of those little lakes that have populations in them. And then they've spread into the Magdalena River, which is the big river that drains down into the Caribbean coast. So that's sort of the main uh, main drainage of, of the that uh, the sort of central um, valley of the Andes there. Mm. And uh, and so that's a huge river, and uh, hippos have moved in there, uh, and so there are various little populations of them. Uh, spread along the river, and as the river goes up and down, uh, as uh, through the rainy seasons and the drier seasons, um, they get sort of isolated. They're little um, floodplain lakes on the on the shores of the river uh, that become isolated from the main river during dry seasons and are part of the river during the wet season. Uh, and hippos are found in a bunch of those now, <clears throat> and so they've spread. Um, they've recently been seen. Uh, as far as about 300 kilometers from Hacienda Napoles, where the where they began, damn. Um, and so they've they've moved quite a distance. Um, uh, they were getting close to the Caribbean coast if they've uh, if they've gone that far. Uh, and there's a lot of habitat for them along the Magdalena River. There's a whole bunch of tributaries and a whole lot of wetlands uh, and a lot of places that hippos would be uh, happy to live. So they've kind of become part of the local uh, scenery uh, and economy. So there's uh, a certain amount of tourism to come and see them, mostly not yeah. foreign tourists, mostly Colombian tourists, although I imagine uh, there may be more foreign uh, foreigners coming as as the story becomes more uh, better known. But I, you know, when I've been there, I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen another foreigner other than me. <laughs> um, when, when was the last time you were down there? Uh, um, 2019. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. So it's it's often said that the um, 
the most aggressive and problematic large animal in Africa is the hippopotamus. And there are more, if I'm not mistaken, documented incidents with people with hippos than any other large mammal. Um, would you have you know, I, I mean, I know you're not a, a hippo specialist, but um, it's curious to me that there is such a history of conflict in East Africa with hippos, but there doesn't seem to be as much documented conflict with the hippos in Colombia yet. Um, do you think that may be um, something that we would also see in the wetter parts of Africa where hippos live, where there's less conflict, less uh, struggle for resources and territory? Yeah, it it might be. I mean, I I, I don't really know. Um, there have so there was this year. In addition to hippos being seen far down towards the Caribbean, uh, there also was an attack. Somebody, a farmer, was attacked uh, near Asiendanapolis, uh, who was you know sort of tending his uh, tending his farm and got and got attacked and injured. So they, uh, you know, they're they're not uh, necessarily more uh, pacifists. They, um, the ones, so in the ones in the little lakes that we've studied, I mean, when we go to sample, like we just kind of walk up to the lake and the hippos kind of look at us and we look at them and they often sort of swim over to the other side of the lake and just kind of give us the stink eye. Um, but, um, in the river, they seemed to be much more aggressive. So when we drove a boat near them in the river, they sort of rose up out of the water and kind of, you know, wiggled their ears and kind of made, had body language that said that they, they were not happy about us. And so I suspect that the ones in the rivers probably encounter people more often because there's more, uh, fishermen and, and things around. So they, they may have more, uh, dealings with people. And so they may have learned to, uh, not like people more than the ones in the lakes. Uh, I'm not, that's so one of the next questions we do want to ask is whether their behavior is really different. Um, and so one of our, one of our plans, uh, is, uh, is to try and GPS collar or tag, uh, some number of animals so that we can see whether they're, whether they're, movement patterns are different whether they 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 move around more or less than african hippos yeah god it's such a fascinating situation i mean what i mean aside from the asian water buff i guess livestock has been introduced to every um continent on earth except for antarctica at this point so i guess that is like the other large invasive form of megafauna that we struggle with on this planet um is there any documented detriment to the environment that you've been able to detect so far with their presence in Colombia? Yeah, so fertilize, you know, adding nutrients to rivers and lakes uh, is generally a negative, uh, and in the sort of extreme, can lead to uh, eruptions of harmful toxic algae, bacteria, you know, cause various kinds of bacteria to uh, become more numerous. Um, and so, and and can lead to eventually to anoxic conditions and uh, and death of fish and any other you know other animals that breathe air and water breathe oxygen and water, um, and so you know we have observed that that the oxygen uh, concentrations uh, get lower at night uh, in hippo lakes where the fertilization. Uh, produces a lot more organic material and then decomposes at night and that consumes oxygen. Right. Uh, so, so those kinds of things maybe uh, may become more uh, may become a problem in the future. Like right now, there's not you know there's maybe somewhere around a hundred hippos, uh, which is not that many. Um, but if they continue to grow at their current rate, you know they going they. They grew at about 10% per year from, you know, 1993 till now. Uh, and if you sort of draw that out, then, you know, you predict that there'll be thousands of them in the next couple of decades. What concerns, has there been any uh, discernible effect of the hippo's very tiny uh, genetic pool? Uh, has there been any hint of that manifesting in their physiology? Have there been any concerns around that? What has been the conversation around that? Yeah, that's another. So, so that, so for one of our next, uh, so, you know, after we published our work on this, um, I was contacted by a group of veterinarians uh, and people who are 
interested in sort of humane control of, you know, animal populations, um, about the possibility of capturing and sterilizing enough of the hippos to prevent uh, continued growth of the population. And so, you know, one of the things we'd like to do is to put GPS tags on them to see where they go. Uh, and then the other is to uh, take genetic samples uh, to sequence them and make a pedigree of the population. So you can sort of figure out who's related to who. Um, and you can measure genetic diversity as sort of heterozygosity that, you know, when you're very inbred, you tend to have very low um, heterozygosity. And so you, you know, you have very low genetic diversity within your genome. Yeah. Uh, and we should be able to see whether that's true or not. Uh, and whether that's, you know, possibly, uh, I mean, the fact that the population is growing at a fairly rapid clip uh, suggests that it's not that much of a problem for them, or it's not, you know, they may be inbred, but they're still, uh, you know, still not having any trouble uh, reproducing. The the situation itself down there as to like how to deal with this, you know, slow boom of a uh, paradigm shift down there. Um I understand that there has been significant disagreement as to how and when these hippos should be dealt with. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's very significant disagreement. Um, and I mean, it's a real conflict between different, you know, how you value different kinds of, you know, organisms and how, you know, what you consider to be the natural state of ecosystems. So, there's con, you know, they have value as, you know, through sort of a tourist attraction. So they have some, you know, economic value. People come and see them and they spend money and, uh, you know, go out to eat. And, uh, and so, you know, there's, you know, there's a little cafe next to the lake that's full of main lake that's full of hippos. And, you know, there's a little town where people visit and, you know, so there's, um, you know, there's some, uh, you know, there's there they have some sort of local uh, support uh, because of their their sort of a you know they they do something for the local economy, uh, and then people who are uh, you know really interested in animal welfare are you know concerned about um, you know not wanting to uh, you know sort of humanely uh, you know dealing with them and whether you know whether they should be dealt with at all. I mean, so I you know I get asked this all the time, like should you know what should be done and uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, how should you do it? And, uh, you know, there's, there's not an easy answer to that. I mean, I, you know, they're not, there's, you know, I, my personal belief is that there's not much of a justification for, uh, having them there. They're, you know, not a native species and, um, they, uh, you know, as their numbers grow, um, conflicts with them will, you know, will happen, uh, and they will, mm. you know, they will start to, uh, you know, become a problem for people. Um, uh, and also if you're going to do something, you know, it's much better to do it when there's, you know, from a humane standpoint, when there's fewer of them than when there's more of them. So if, you know, there gets to be thousands of them, that means that if you decide to remove them, you have to remove thousands of them rather than hundreds. Uh, and that's obviously much more expensive and difficult and, uh, you know, sort of, requires you to, uh, you know, deal with a lot more individuals. Um, so, but it is, I mean, it is, you know, it is a really interesting question because, you know, people will, people have really divergent opinions on what, what is the right thing to do? Are these, uh, in some sense natural, you know, is there some sense in which this is now a, what you call naturalized species, a species that has sort of gone native and now is just a part of the ecosystem and, uh, should be sort of treated like any other, uh, or is it, uh, you know, is it, and is it sort of restoring some, uh, you know, some lost, uh, feature of, you know, Colombian ecosystems that was, uh, around, you know, prior to, uh, human settlement in, in the new world. And that's, those are all, you know, they're tricky questions. For sure. And I, I, I believe I heard that some type of legislation was passed locally that protects the hippos from any type of attempted uh, management or culling of them. Is, is that are you familiar? with? That? I have not heard that. Um, the main person I deal with there is David Echeverry, who's the who's a biologist for Cornari, which is the local government authority um, or uh, sort of environmental authority. 
uh, and he uh, is convinced that uh, something needs to be done about them and should be done sooner rather than later, uh, but uh, also recognizes that, um, that anything that involves killing them is going to be uh, completely unacceptable, that, um, that when they've been killed in the past, it's caused a huge uproar and uh, uh, I'm sure his phone blows up, and uh, uh, and it and it brings all sorts of uh, brings all sorts of uh, bad attention. So he's interested in looking for um, solutions that are you know humane solutions that are uh, going to not just sort of allow them to continue to just kind of spread and reproduce un, unchecked. And and it, it, from here, it seems like the most humane option would be to capture the males and uh, neuter them. No, um, that, I mean, from my perspective, that looks like the way to go. Yes. Um, so, OK, so I'm now speaking out of my uh, knowledge, uh, but I've been uh, talking with these veterinarians. So there is apparently a chemical treatment that can be used to sterilize females. Uh, the problem with sterilizing. So. The problem with doing sterilizing them, I mean, doing anything that involves, so you cannot, they do not have uh, external testes. So you cannot just um, uh, yeah. neuter them the way you would a, you know, a pig or a cow or something. Uh, and so it involves right. really doing surgery, uh, which, uh, you know, you can sort of imagine, you know, they're, they're often in groups. They only really come out of the water at night. They're very hard. You know, if you, you can't just sort of, if you dart them and they go in the water, then they just sort of sink in the water and drown and die. Uh, and so you have to oh, dart them somewhere away from the water. Uh, and then you have to, you know, do surgery on some huge sleeping animal. Um, and so, um, and so the preferred method that I've heard about is some chemical treatment that sterilizes the, the females um, and can be sort of just given administered as a shot. Uh, um, and so that's, that's sort of the, the, the sort of preferred plan at this point. What is the, from your, from where you've been, what is the perceived level of alarm amongst people uh, around this situation? Um, I, I mean, I would say among sort of local people who live there, uh, they've just kind of gotten used to them uh, and they're not alarmed at all. Uh, among people who, among uh, biologists and um, people sort of involved in environmental issues in Colombia, um, there's kind of a growing urgency, you know, sense of urgency that something should be done about them. Um, and uh, so I think there is getting to be more uh, of a kind of momentum to try and do something about them. I mean, the question is, you know, who's who's going to pay for it? How's it how's it going to be done? Um, that's, you know, that's sort of the real, the real problem. Um, but there is, you know, there, uh, there's a Colombian sort of wildlife biology society that released a statement saying that they should be, uh, you know, they should be removed, you know, by one mm. way or another. And so, you know, the, um, there, you know, there are groups of people that are kind of making more noise to say something, you know, this, we can't just sort of let this continue. If only there were some um, benevolent and very, very wealthy uh, drug lord yeah. that offered up funds to yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, humanely manage the situation. I know. I, yeah, I, I don't I don't know such people, so I have no uh, I have no way of contacting them. Um, oh, come on. It's 2021. There has to be some type of ecologically concerned like, drug lord out like there a, like just a, waiting to help. A LinkedIn for drug lords. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it's. Uh, that's that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think they, uh, you know, I mean, that was sort of one of the unique things about Pablo Escobar was that he was uh, willing to sort of have a high profile, whereas, you know, most most people who make their livelihoods off criminal endeavors try and kind of fly below the radar a bit. Uh, not him. So they're they're not generally interested in, uh, you know, doing things that call attention to themselves. Um, so yeah, I don't. That's I mean. You know, there may be, you know, maybe one of your listeners is such a person who uh, would really like to, uh, uh, you know, would, and if so, they should contact me. Uh, they would really like to uh, contribute to trying to find a humane solution to this. Um, but we are, yeah, I mean, you know, if they're, you know, I, I sort of see if people are going to go to the trouble of catching them um, and people, it seems that people want to, um, I mean, I think this sort of, you know, the sort of potential to do research with them 
uh, would be really interesting, you know, looking at their genetics, looking at their behavior and their movement. Um, totally. And then, and then the other thing we really want to do is if you take uh, fecal samples, you can sequence the DNA and you can see uh, what they're eating. You can see what kind of bacteria are living in their guts uh, and what kind of parasites they have. And we can compare that with samples from African hippos. So we can ask whether, you know, whether their interactions with other species, their gut bacteria, their food, the plants that they eat, uh, or the parasites that infect them are are different in the new world. And, you know, one idea is that invasive species do well because they escape from their parasites. And when you put them in a new oh, yeah. range, they don't have all these sort of co-adapted parasites and diseases that they get. Uh, where I mean, I would, I would, I would imagine the inverse is true, as has history has documented many times, that they don't have any built-in defenses for, you know, parasites yeah. in Colombia, you know, and plants that may have adapted a particular toxin that they haven't managed to evolve a response to and so on. Yeah, um, that's, that's possible as well. How would you, and I, and I know this is not your area of expertise, but you may have something to add. How do you think the United States um, particularly in light of 2020 and in looking at how Colombia has dealt with it, how would you imagine they would respond to a, a herd of hippos in somewhere in the swampy marshes of Florida? Yeah, um, that's, I mean, that's, I think they would probably have, we would probably have the same problems that Colombia has and that there's a lot of disagreement between different groups of people about what, uh, I mean, so Florida is, of course, you know, well familiar with all sorts of invasive wildlife, right? And nutrients, oh, yeah. and pythons and green iguanas and uh, all sorts of it's things. It's like practically a, its own new, like, biosphere continent. Yeah. It's like it's got critters from all over the place, everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, and as you know, there's, a you know, there's, you know, there's people that go and kill pythons and things like that. And, uh, you know, and there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of disagreement about it um the uh i mean i'm trying to think i can't really think of a good sort of analog i mean there 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 are invasive species that people like and value um the example i always think of is like pacific salmon in the great lakes where they've you know we've introduced you know chinook and coho salmon uh, into, you know, all the North American Great Lakes and, you know, people love going and fishing for them and they're, yeah. you know, very popular. And, uh, you know, you know, most people would not consider them to be, uh, you know, a problem at all, even though they're, you know, not native and they, they were introduced and they're, you know, they're definitely now just part of the ecosystem. Um, you know, so it's sort of, you know, when people value different, you know, species differently, uh, you know, then, um, you know, then it, then, you know, you get these kinds of conflicts. The, the group that we're dealing with that's interested in sterilizing them, their other main projects are about sterilizing cats and dogs in the Galapagos. So where there are feral cats and dogs and they, you know, eat baby giant tortoises yeah. and iguanas and all that, you know, so they're, you know, they have a real effect on native wildlife there. Uh, and, you know, and so, you know, People obviously don't want you going and killing cats and dogs. Um, so, you know, then the question is, well, what are you going to do? Truly wild. Um, so there has been some discussion around, um, I mean, this is like a, 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 a somewhat fun topic, but there's been this conversation around how the, this environment may be benefiting from the presence of an introduced uh, large mammal uh, herbivore. Um, and then there's this ongoing discussion about Pleistocene rewilding and and then filling in um, ecological niches that have been abandoned for most of documented human history. Um, have you are you familiar at all with this conversation? And uh, if so, does it relate at all to the situation with the hippos from your perspective? Yeah, I I mean I am I know I know about those uh, discussions um, and. I mean, I guess the question is really is what is the uh, ecological state that you're trying to restore your ecosystem to and what is the uh, sort of ecological benefit of any particular species? So, you know, there's this idea that 
uh, grazing animals really maintain savanna ecosystems or grassland ecosystems prevented them from turning into forests uh, by sort of grazing heavily on uh, on trees and uh, uh, sort of the way af- you know elephants kind of maintain savanna ecosystems as open they sort of knock down trees and uh, you know rip out seedlings and things like that um, what you know so the, I mean what are the sort of specific ecological functions? Uh, that you're trying to restore with uh, with uh, introduced megafauna. One of the there's a really interesting paper from the 60s or 70s uh, that there's a lot of plants in the new in the you know South New World tropics and the you know the New World you know South and Central America uh, that have fruits you know these sort of gigantic fruits um, that could only have been dispersed at one time by really large animals right so plant mm-hmm. fruits in order to you know sort of lure some animal into dispersing their seeds for them right and so there's right. a number of plants that have you know really gigantic fruit and you're like well what what could possibly have you know dispersed a fruit of that size uh and the idea is that you know those plants really evolved in response to uh you know sort of using really large animals that are now extinct and that these plants are still around today is sort of a, you know, a vestige or a remnant of this, you know, this ecosystem that used to have these really large animals in them. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's possible that hippos uh, could, I suppose, do things like that. I mean, they pretty much eat grass. Uh, and so I don't know that they, you know, they're not likely to like eat a big fruit and disperse it. Um, I mean, it's sort of a question of what, you know, what, what is the ecosystem function that, you know, you would, and they, you know, they may maintain, uh, you know, vegetation in sort of an open state. They often make what are called grazing lawns, uh, where they sort of go back to the same area over and over, uh, and graze the grass, the grass down really short. Uh, and that sort of maintains it in sort of a fast growing kind of lawn, you know, keeps out yeah. the other vegetation that would, you know, the sort of, you know, woodier plants that would, uh, turn it into a more of a forest kind of situation. Uh, and so, you know, they may be, you know, those kinds of environments are often important for a lot of other species that benefit from that kind of thing. Um, I mean, those are things we just don't know about, about what, you know, what effects hippos are having in, uh, in Colombia. Um, but, you know, the question of, you know, what is the sort of desired target state for, uh, you know, for restoration, you know, right. is it, you know, the way, you know, the way uh, Colombia was when, uh, you know, when Europeans arrived 500 years ago or whatever, or is it the way it was when, you know, indigenous people arrived, you know, 15 or 25, whenever, whenever indigenous people arrived, uh, you know, from, from Asia, you know, you know, long, you know, centuries, you know, millennia ago. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so, and, and the other question is, you know, what are their effects on other, you know, native taxa, the other ones there that are, of concerned are manatees that are in the Magdalena River. Uh, there's large river turtles and caimans and you know various other kinds of species and you know what effect hippos may have or what if any of you know interactions they may have uh, with those species we we just don't know. Hopefully at this point the idea of a booming population of Dinochiris spreading throughout the Everglades might be a little bit more tangible to you. As is the case with the hippos, I can very easily foresee quite a controversy arising over how to handle the situation. You know, it wouldn't take long before enterprising locals would find ways to exploit the existence of these enormous exotic animals for their own financial gain. It happens all over the place. It happens anywhere one can either make or lose a buck. If you visit any place on the planet and you find yourself a critter bigger than 89 pounds, you can be sure to find entire economies built around either eating them, feeding them, or setting up some low-budget side-of-the-road pet-and-play circus around them. And sometimes, if you're really lucky, you might stumble across a one-stop shop opportunity and you can get yourself all the above. So while the local government would squabble over the best course of action, I have no doubt an entire economy would spring up around Dinochirus terrificus tourism in a matter of days. And unlike the hippos, Dinochirus would likely have a much faster rate of reproduction. The situation could easily become untenable in just a few years. Pretty bonkers stuff, isn't it? Who'd have thunk there'd be an invasive hippo situation in Colombia? At the end of our discussion with Dr. Shuren, we discussed the idea that these hippos might actually be fulfilling an ecological niche that has gone abandoned for most of recorded history. 
This idea is part of a much larger and controversial conversation being had amongst ecologists and conservationists all over the planet. As biodiversity and ecological stability collapses all around us on every continent, there's a growing movement towards this concept of Pleistocene rewilding, an effort to somehow return global ecosystems' biodiversity and functionality back to a time before a combination of factors led to a mass extinction of megafauna at the end of the Pleistocene. Up to this point, any serious effort pursuing the de-extinction of any long-gone species has been intrinsically linked to this Pleistocene rewilding concept. As you can imagine, this concept is of tremendous interest to those of us intrigued by the possibility of a Neo-Jurassic world, or in this case, a Neo-Pleistocene world. There's a lot to parse through here, and we've just barely scratched the surface of this conversation. However, y'all can expect a much more thorough exploration of these ideas in a future episode of the show. I mean, it is just so essential to this entire project, and one that I find very, very interesting. Speaking of future episodes, as I mentioned at the start of this one, our exploration into the possibilities of a Dinochirus population in the Everglades will be a two-parter. The second half will be dropping next Friday, so please be sure to tune in as we travel down to the wilds of South Florida and wrangle us some invasive swamp critters. As a native Floridian, I can confirm for you, Florida is wild, it is weird, and it's got more non-native species than any other state in the United States. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it has more invasive animals than pretty much anywhere else. Joining us will be self-described reptile researcher, biologist, and invasive critter trapper, Jenna Cole. Jenna will be guiding us through the murky waters and thick reeds of the Everglades as we learn about all the weird critters that have found themselves a new home there. It's gonna be a really fun one and you're not gonna wanna miss it. As we near the close of this episode, it's time to explore the Jurassic fantasies with another one of our friends and fellow fans, Sam Andrus. Sam is yet another member of the wonderful Jurassic Outpost team and is generally a total delight. Throughout our conversation, we'll discuss favorite dinos, the ill-fated and much-beloved Jurassic World live tour, and a thorough investigation into what Sam's ideal de-extincted pet might be. I hope you enjoy. What would you say is your personal relationship to the Jurassic Park franchise at this point? At this point, um, I got to say it's it's kind of been integral in shaping my life, um, especially these past few years when I really got involved in the Jurassic fandom. Mm -hmm. um, most of my friends now are because of Jurassic. Yeah. Um, a lot of the friends that I talk to over, you know, we do Jackbox games and Zoom together during this pandemic. It they're all because of Jurassic. Um, so I think that's that's kind of special. And like I met you because of Jurassic too. Right, yeah. Um, so I like that it, you know, has brought a lot of people together and everybody has just kind of become my family because mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. And and where what is your relationship to like the world of Jurassic World at this point and that narrative and that story and the films, the television, the theme parks? Like what is your relationship to all of that? Um, it's uh it's expanded over the past few years with so much more like I I mean, I didn't go to the theme parks um until a few years ago. Yeah. Um, but watched the movie when I was little, when it came out, read the books. Um, it was more of like, just got me interested in science and dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Um, and Michael Crichton in general. Mm -hmm. Um, but then it got into like being part of, um, I don't know, being part of the franchise in a weird way because being on Jurassic outpost. Yeah. Um, so you know, we're helping spread the news to everyone and um, kind of being that link a little bit between yeah. um, the movies and, and stuff and the fans. Um, so I think it's been really fun, and I'm glad that I can be a part of it. Was that you in narrating some, way. some of the recent Jurassic videos? I'll yes, it was. I did okay, two of them. Okay, you did a great them. job. Thank you. Yeah, I love them. 
yeah, that was uh, that was really fun, and it was nice because like I just read off a script. So, yeah. <laughs> did you write it too, or did someone else write it? No, that was uh, I think both Jack and Chris um, okay. wrote both of those. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, I loved it. Um, what aspects of Jurassic and dinosaurs do you find most fascinating and alluring? What draws you to that? Do you think? Um, well, I think at first it was, uh, you know, when I was little watching the movie and then reading the book, um, it was, it made like dinosaurs seem like it was possible. Like it, like they could come back to life at some point Mm -hmm. because I was, I mean, as a little kid, I was like, yeah, the science absolutely makes sense and we're going to have dinosaurs (laughs) at some point. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but uh, beyond that, I think that got me into dinosaurs. And then I remember, for whatever reason in school, we did like a whole dinosaur learning section. Um, so we got to color dinosaurs and, you know, learn the names and all of that stuff. Um, but uh, I just, I don't know. I think they're fascinating that they're creatures that were once on this earth that we don't really know a lot about and that we're only kind of guessing from what evidence is left of them yeah it's such a fun mystery to to and like such a little treat to have these little windows open up in news where we learn something crazy and new about this animal that existed so long ago it's it, it's it, it's so fun there's so much potential there mm-hmm I know I like I enjoy seeing those like oh guess what this this dinosaur didn't look like how we thought it looked five years ago so gonna have to redraw everything guys (laughs) like every every two weeks it feels like it and it's so it's such a pressure to maintain scientific accuracy with Jurassic and it's just gotten harder with these developments happening every Mm -hmm. other day it feels like I think that's a cool part of it though too it's because um, you know, obviously not all the dinosaurs in Jurassic look like their real life counterparts. Yeah. But I think it's cool that some of them, you know, looked like how we thought they looked like back when they were made. Mm-hmm. So like the Spinosaurus specifically, you know, like yeah. we thought that's what it looked like then. It's, yeah. That's not what it looked like. JK. Yeah, but it's a it's a fun little like time capsule of like our yeah. understanding of what we thought that was. Yeah, it's kind of it kind of reminds me of like the very first dinosaur drawings that people ever did where they're like just absolutely wacky lizard looking things, you know, it's yeah. like how far we've come in science, you know? Yeah. Um, what would you like to see in the future of the franchise? And I mean that as open as you'd like. Um, Ellie Sattler, everything. Yeah. <laughs> She's my girl. Um, so, but we are getting her and, uh, Uh, Sam Neill back. So that was a little bit of my dream from, I think probably first when Jurassic World came out and I'm like, wait, we're not getting them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, uh, I honestly, I would like more books. Um, I don't know. I don't know specifically which characters, maybe like a Henry Wu book or something. Um, get into his mind a little bit i think that would be interesting um because i really enjoyed uh claire's book like yeah it was great um i don't know that i'd want more young adult necessarily um just my personal preference but i did enjoy that i liked seeing the character getting a little background um so really any kind of uh book spinoffs of people would be i think a lot of fun Um, and then I really enjoyed the Jurassic World live tour, um, and what they were able to do with that. Um, did you get to see that before? I didn't, I didn't No. If you get a chance, if it starts back up, hopefully it happens again. Yeah. Um, because it was amazing. Like I loved it. And um, um, what did you love about it? I, I've only seen clips and I was really impressed with the way they use the score from the movies. In mm-hmm. the show. I thought they handled that really well, but I, I don't know anything about the show. 
Yeah, so I think they expanded upon the world really well, but also had it fit in and it felt like Jurassic the whole time. Um, so like the the main character, Dr. Kate Walker, um, absolutely cool scientist chick who's out there like beating up dudes, but also is like really deeply cares about the dinosaurs. Uh-huh. Um, she was amazing and she's one of my favorite characters in the Jurassic universe at this point. Oh, cool. Um, so I'm really sad that a lot of people didn't get to experience her. Um, but, uh, no, they, they got to expand more and like show us different areas of the Island, which we've also, they touched on with camp Cretaceous, which I was really happy about. Um, so I just like exploring what else is going on. What type of scientist is Dr. Kate Walker? What's her specialty, her field? Uh, I want to say like animal behaviorist, I think, because okay. she's working with a trodon, uh-huh. um, which is like the big green uh, dinosaur Giant puppet thing that we usually puppet. see. Yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> it was like compy. Um, she's working with it and has this little like um, emotional reader uh-huh. that goes on the dinosaur, and so she can look at this little like it's basically kind of like a mood ring. And so she can see what the dinosaur is feeling and kind oh. of work with it that way. Okay. So it's more like Owen, but the emotional side of it, if okay. that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and then just what they were able to accomplish as well was amazing with the life-size like raptor costumes. Mm-hmm. And the the stunt show was cool. I mean there are people inside those raptors running around for two hours. Yeah, um, it's wild. But I don't know. It was just amazing. I loved it. Um, so things like that where I guess you don't have the pressure of the main series, but you get you still get Jurassic and you get the feel of it, but you get a little more fun and, and new things in that same world. That's yeah. what I would love to see more of. Um, now I just have a few more, little bit more fun questions. Yeah. Um, first, if there, if you could bring back any species, bring it back from extinction, mm-hmm. what species would it be? Paris or all of us. Yeah. Why? Yeah, that's mine. Um, that has become my favorite dinosaur in mm-hmm. recent years. Um, and on the like you know, if we're thinking about which dinosaurs to bring back, like realistically, I'm not going to pick a carnivore. Yeah. Cause like, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to eat me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, like they say in the first movie, I mean, the, the herbivores are like kind of giant cows. Right. Mm-hmm. But I could also potentially ride the Parasaurolophus. Oh, so, that would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so it gets into like a little Dinotopia, yeah. kind of want there um but i don't know i just love them i think they're cool and uh, i love them too they're always one of my favorites it's sort of related and it, it may be the same answer but if you could have any pet like a genetically engineered dinosaur pet mm-hmm. what would it be hmm well i've thought about this too because like if we're gonna genetically modify them you could technically make like mm-hmm. a mini t-rex or something right like right um but still i don't i don't know like a little if i could have like a baby raptor but it stayed baby stayed a baby like a toy raptor (laughs) (laughs) i saw some at target earlier i i have uh i have one of the little blue baby blue plushes um it's so cute like i would love I that love the baby pet. raptors so much. I want like a show of just the baby raptors. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're and so I, cute. I don't know. I sort of feel like they would be like cats, like personality yeah. wise, but like yeah. you could have them bite your enemies if they, you know, <laughs> came around. I mean, I've seen cats bite enemies too. Oh, totally. So they'd be like a mix of cat and dog where they could yeah. like protect your house and uh-huh. just bite people that pissed you off. 
Can you imagine just like walking a little raptor squad down the street? I, I mean, I think about it every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that'd be great. But uh, it would be. I mean, or like really any of the herbivores. I mean, if I had the space, mm-hmm. Brachiosaurus is just yeah, just a big open thing of Brachiosauruses and like just doing their thing. I think uh, that'd be really cool. How how wonderful would that be? How tranquil. I know, because, like, I, so I grew up on a farm, um, uh-huh. and so I'm very used to, like, cows and horses just kind of, like, chilling in a field. Mm-hmm. That's really what I imagine they do, just bigger, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean br- the sauropods are believed to have just been, like, eating constantly because they needed to eat constantly to survive, so. Right. If we get into that aspect, they're not really a good choice to bring back as pets because, like, I wouldn't be able to feed them. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be very demanding with their uh, dinner. Just constantly just stripping all the trees. and mm-hmm. So maybe the, maybe the little raptors as pets. Feed yeah, it seems easier to manage. Yeah. Well, that just about wraps things up for now. I sincerely hope you all have enjoyed this first installment of our Everglades Invasive Situation two-parter. The second installment should be arriving next Friday, and I do hope you'll join us again for that one. I would also like to mention that in the near future, the YouTube version of the Neo-Jurassic podcast will be augmented with some cool visuals, video interviews. Oh, speaking of which, if you all would like to join me for a future Jurassic Fantasy segment, hit me up and let me know. I would love to set up a video chat interview with you all for some future episodes. Anyway, as the saying goes, be sure to like, subscribe, tell your friends, leave an effusively glowing podcast review, etc. And until then, bye.